Well, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Jennifer Homans directs the Center for Ballet and the Arts at NYU. And last month, she wrote an article about choreography under lockdown. Here's how it opens. In recent weeks, the vinyl surface known as Marley, which covers the floor of dance studios and stages, has been cut into pieces and shipped around the world to dancers exiled to their homes. And I've been watching as these dancers, standing on outposts of abandoned theaters in their kitchens and living rooms, take ballet classes on Zoom, Instagram, YouTube. They are doing it for one another and for themselves. Class preserves the body, but above all, it tames the mind. It is logical and rigorous. It breaks things down, ordering the limbs in repetitive exercises that every dancer knows by heart, like a daily prayer. Dancing, or failing to do so, is one of the warnings in our reading from Matthew's Gospel. To what shall I compare your unbelief, Jesus asked. You're like children, refusing to join in on each other's games. We played music, but you did not dance. We sang a dirge, but you did not mourn. Now, children actually come up twice in our passage, and the text as a whole could be likened to two kinds. Verses 16 through 19 describe those who fail to recognize what God is doing. And verses 25 through 30 describe those who get in on it, who grasp who Jesus is, who respond to him in faith, and whose bodies are preserved, minds tamed, and souls find rest. Following Jesus is like learning to dance when you hear someone play the flute. I want to talk this morning about choreography under lockdown, about what it would look like to find rest in Jesus in these extraordinary times. And our passage gives us at least two things uh, to do, or at least two things that it might involve. First, personal knowing. Personal knowing. What do I mean by that? I'll get to it in a minute. But I want you to notice at the outset that before Jesus's invitation to live freely and lightly, he makes an extraordinary statement about knowing God. It's in verse 27. He says, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son reveals him. No one knows the Father except the Son. This is a bold and a straightforward declaration. Jesus is saying, I am the only one who knows God, and so I am the only one who can make God known or make God knowable. There are lots of ways that we can learn about God. I have learned a lot about the grandeur of God in creation. There is an evidential power in the beauty all around us. 
I have learned a lot about God and the demands of my conscience. We see the violation of human dignity. And there's something deep within us that grasps it is wrong. And it points us to the truth of God. But a thousand sunsets over the Grand Canyon, as beautiful and as inspiring as they are, cannot show us the Father. The most fearless and courageous advocate of justice, no matter how heroic and laudable and admirable they are, cannot in and of themselves show us the Father. Only Jesus tells us what we need to know. Only Jesus shows us the face of God, the sweat of God, the tears of God, the blood of God. In Christian teaching, there is an unbreakable bond between this peasant from Nazareth and the God of the universe. They enjoy a unique, a intimate, reciprocal relationship. No one knows the Father except me, Jesus says. It's a claim no other religious teacher would dare to make. There are a lot of ways to learn about God. It's only in Jesus that we can know God personally. Now that, that distinction I'm making about knowing versus personal knowing, does that hold? Well, I, I would suggest that is the way most of our relationships work. Remember way back when, when we could meet people for coffee? <laughs> well, imagine meeting someone for the first time and sitting down for coffee with them. You probably ask a lot of questions. You know, where are you from? What do you do? Where do you live? Who are your friends? You are, you're learning about them. But if you met them for coffee several times, if you sat down for them with them week in and week out, you know what, what might happen? You may cross the line from about knowing to personal knowing. How? Well, in order for the relationship to become personal uh, and meaningful, you have to be willing to op open up and talk about what really matters, what your dreams are, the things you love, the things you're afraid of, the things that help you, the things that hurt you. What do we say when you start talking about stuff like that? Whoa, it's getting personal. Well, if two people respond to each other with that kind of honesty and trust, at some point they're going to stand up after getting coffee and say, I, I guess we're friends now. We've crossed the line from about knowing to personal knowing. And that is what I want to say Jesus offers us, an opportunity to get personal with God. How do we do it? Well, I think Jesus gives us a hint in this passage. Let's listen to him. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, he prays, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Little children, that's the key. The actual word that Jesus uses is babies. It's, he is describing people who, whatever their age, are earnest and direct and unreserved in their search for truth. These are the kind of people, the people who are childlike, to whom God is revealed, to whom God becomes familiar and personable. God remains hidden 
from everybody else. Now, being childlike does not mean stifling our intellect. It does not mean being silenced and refusing or being told to not ask hard questions. So what does it mean to be a childlike, to be a baby in your search for a God? Well, let's think about the way children actually act. Children are people who are never, ever afraid of asking you to do things for them. Children asked to be held. They asked for snacks. They asked to be carried and played with and read to. They asked for siblings and presents and puppies and Pokemon cards. And even when children are perfectly capable of doing for themselves whatever they're asking of you to do, they still ask you to do it. They're simply not ashamed to ask for help. Children are also people who never doubt that they're loved. What do I mean? Well, I'm not raising children, but you know, I've heard the stories. It's four in the morning. You're going on three hours of broken sleep and your infant starts to cry. Feed me, hold me, give me a puppy. And so you do. Maybe not the puppy, but you hold them. And while you are in your mind thinking, how am I gonna get through another day on no sleep? Your child, completely and blissfully oblivious to how exhausted you are, smiles, thanks you with their eyes, and falls asleep. Children are not afraid to ask for help because they know that they're loved. Now experience may teach them to doubt it, but their congenital instinct is to trust and depend upon the love of their parents. And what I wanna say here is that if you wanna draw close to God, if you wanna know God personally in Jesus Christ, then a pretty good place to start is by acting like a child. To not be afraid to ask God for help and to never doubt for a second that you are loved by God. When we keep our distance, when we don't give voice to our doubts and concerns and questions and fears and desires, then God can seem so far off. But when we open up, we discover that God is closer to us than our very breath, that God is never far away, and that God wants to help us and, and walk with us through the ups and downs of our lives. God does not ask for a working knowledge of biblical Greek. God does not ask for a proven track record. God does not ask for rock-ribbed faith. God asks you to not be afraid to ask for help and to never doubt that you are loved. God asks you to be like a child in your pursuit of him. Personal knowing. That's the first thing we see here. The second thing is hearts set at rest, souls finding rest. Come to me, Jesus says, all who are weary and burdened. He's talking to people who are tired and under pressure. It's not the most flattering picture 
of human experience, but it is realistic. We all know what it feels like to be constrained, to be carrying a burden that threatens to, to bring us down, to be on the verge of burnout. And you know, maybe if I'm preaching on this fifth Sunday after Pentecost, three years from now, when the passage that we're talking about today comes up again in the lectionary, I'll talk more timelessly about our anxieties, about our fears, about our temptations, about our loneliness, about our regrets and disappointments and failures. We're all carrying weights like that around at any given time. But in this moment, on this Sunday, our burdens are specific and they're immediate and insistent and inescapable. I talked this week with a member of our community who works in mental health. And he explained that the conditions surrounding the pandemic have effectively removed the structure that organizes our daily life. And so we face this unique burden of decision-making every single morning. And it's exhausting. I saw something on Twitter this week that really got at this. All I did was write out my to-do list and I'm ready for a nap. Can you relate to that? I'm wondering, all you who are watching this now, <laughs> what kind of burdens you're feeling. Maybe you're asking questions like, how am I gonna fill up the hours of this afternoon? Or how am I gonna tell my family we're not gonna be able to make that trip how are my kids going to survive a July in Austin if the pools don't open back up? How am I going to find spiritual nourishment without the ability to worship with my community or receive Holy Communion? What does the rest that Jesus offers us look like this summer, this week, this Sunday? Well, I don't know for sure. But one thing I do know is that if Jesus is going to give us rest, then Jesus cannot be a memory. Jesus cannot be an ideal. Jesus cannot be a book. If Jesus is going to give us rest, then Jesus has to be present within and among us. We have to find a way to lay hold of Jesus' promise that he will be with us always even to the end of the age. A lot of scholars uh, read this passage from Matthew 11. Is, uh, they understand it as a, as a hearkening back to Exodus 33. That's when Moses stands before God and says, God, there is no way I'm going to be able to do all the things that you're asking me to do. And God responds in Exodus 33, verse 14, My presence will go with you, Moses, and I will give you rest. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. This is the moment to take seriously the promise of the presence of God. Lo, I am with you always, Jesus said, even to the end of the age. It's the presence of Jesus that is the, the music in our ears, inspiring us to stand up and dance. I really appreciated what, what Krista shared 
uh, before singing that song, Waymaker. I've been listening to that song on repeat the last few weeks uh, when I've been running or washing dishes. Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. I have been singing it and believing it and naming it and claiming it. I need that to be true for me. I need the manifest presence of God to set my heart at rest. We all need Jesus to not be a memory, to not be an ideal, but to come alongside us and to make us brave and strong by being brave and strong beside us. We need Jesus's presence and we need people. We need each other. No one learns how to dance alone. And that article I mentioned at the top, the author, she related how heartbreaking it is to watch these dancers practice their craft alone, holding on to the bar in their most dependent and vulnerable state. Their class is truncated, she says, a communal right cut down to a startlingly raw solo form. You know, the novelty of this pandemic, it wore off like two and a half months ago. I'm very aware of that. But we did such a good job at the beginning of this craziness, checking in on each other, keeping tabs on each other. And I wonder what it would look like for us to renew that effort during the month of July. In the email on Friday, Sarah challenged us to check in on one member of the community this week. Give them a call, send them a text, leave them a voicemail. Let them know that you are praying for them, that you are standing with them, that you are believing God's promises for them. And I'm going to do that. And I'm, I'm asking you, like Sarah, I'm just going to second her request. Check in on one member of our community this week. We are going to have to link arms and stand alongside each other as we endure this, this unprecedented time. Jesus makes this wonderful passage in our promise, it makes this wonderful promise in our passage to give us this personal knowledge of God, to reveal God to us, and to give us rest, to help us live freely and lightly. And he likens it to a kind of dance, and I want to close this, this homily by uh, sharing with you how one of my favorite preachers imagines this exchange. All of you who are tired and empty and afraid, there is right now opposite you someone who it seems doesn't need to learn. Someone who knows they are lovely and loved. Someone for whom dancing comes natural. Someone with no paralyzing self-conscious dread, no self-protection to overcome. So he begins. He stretches out his arms as wide as he can, and so do you. He rises up, arms to the sky, and so do you. Then he takes your hand and swings you loose, and leaves you to improvise with the music, first on your own, then coming with the others, then alone again, then with one, two, then with everyone all together. This is the rest Jesus promises 
to all who are weary. This is the gentleness and humility of heart he offers to all. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.